Welcome to episode eight of Breakfast Poetry. This week I was able to speak with the poet Rosemary Watola Troma, and she lives with her husband and two children in Placerville, Colorado, on the banks of the wild and undammed San Miguel River. She served as San Miguel County's first poet laureate from 2007 to 2011, and as Western Slope Poet Laureate from 2015 to 2017. In 2019, she was a finalist for Colorado Poet Laureate. She is devoted to helping others explore their creative potential. Rosemary is the co-host of Emerging Form, a podcast on creative process with Christy Ashwanden. She teaches and performs poetry for addiction recovery programs, hospice, mindfulness retreats, women's retreats, teachers, and more. Past clients include Camp Coca-Cola, Craig Hospital, Business and Professional Women, Deepak Chopra, Think360, AHA, School for the Arts, Desert Dharma, Wilkinson Public Library, Telluride Literary Burlesque, and Colorado Mesa State University. She performs as a storyteller, including shows in Aspen at the Wheeler Opera House, at the Taos Storytelling Festival, and National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Her TEDx talk explores changing our outdated metaphors. She believes in the power of practice and has been writing a poem a day since 2006. Her daily poems can be found at 100fallingveils.com. Favorite themes in her poems include parenting, gardening, the natural world, love, science, thriving and failure, and daily life. Well, I wanted to start by reading St. Francis in the South. Actually, I want to start by saying that it was very difficult to select <laughs> only a couple of poems, just because there are so many that have profoundly moved me and changed me and that come to me again and again and again and reinform what does it mean to be alive. So that was tough. I'm sorry, I know. That just means we'll have to do this again, you know, so you can get through all your poems. <laughs> 25 years later. Um, Let's do it. So, so the, um, this one, St. Francis in the Sow, I chose because I think maybe others like me and struggle with um, believing in our own worth, believing in our own beauty. And, and this really touches that. Yeah. This is St. Francis and the Sow by Galway Canal. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower, for everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on its brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, blessings of earth on the sow. And the sow 
began remembering all down her thick length, from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail. From the hard spininess spiked out from the spine down through the great broken heart to the sheer blue milken dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the 14 teats into the 14 mouths sucking and blowing beneath them the long perfect loveliness of sow thank you for reading that and of course whenever someone else reads you know you sent this to me earlier and things came to heart and mind as I read it. But of course, when you read it, you know, new things come forward. So I'm wondering for you with this poem, do you have a, you know, a memory of where it was in the poem that it first really started to draw you in and you were like, oh, this one is going somewhere. <laughs> like this one's going to move me. Or even if that's just, what is it today? If you can't remember that initial. I tell you what, I, I, number one, I'm amazed that I got through it without crying. I often weep in this poem. Um, I think it's interesting too, that I didn't love this poem the first time I read it and maybe not even the second time. And I think that happens with so many poems. You know, sometimes the first, sometimes you read a poem and instantaneously fall in love. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, this was a slower courtship. <laughs> like it's a poem about a pig, you know? <laughs> um, and it isn't a, a beautiful romantic poem in any way, right? I mean, the hard spininess spiked out from the spine, the, the milk and dreaminess spurting and shuddering, the 14 teeth. I mean, this is, this is, this is not romantic. <laughs> um, but what would have been the moment then that I did? It was, I think, a small awareness. You know, I think maybe one time when I read it again, and, and this must have been 20 years ago. And I was just kind of astonished by these lines right here. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though Sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. And I, I know the truth of that so completely in myself that we, I, that I forget, I forget that there's anything good about me. Like I can tell my, I can tell all the bad stories of what a terrible mother I am and I'm not a good enough person. I'm not generous enough and I'm not smart enough and I'm not kind enough. And I, you know, I'm, oh, and, and, uh, and there's nothing anyone else could say that would help that. No one else could say, oh, yes, you are. That, that voice from outside would have zero effect. It wouldn't be believable. It only is, as Galway Cannell says, from within of self-blessing that the authenticity of that knowledge, that, we, that I am kind, that I am lovely, just by being the Rosemary Watola Tromer who I am. In, in the world by 
growing into the potential of that and continually evolving into the potential of that. Uh, that's what every one of us is here to do, right? And and the <laughs> so the the pig is the perfect. Perfect metaphor, right? <laughs> With all of its squealing and <laughs> you know, the fodder and slops and the giant snout. Um yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for that. I mean, I, I had a similar experience with it where you know, the first few lines, I was like, this is lovely. This is so lovely. But then it's, it actually started talking about the sow. And I was like, oh, well, this doesn't match that, you know, like this springtime, you know, blossoming, flowering, like pristine and pure. Now all of a sudden we're like in the mud, the milk is that, you know, it was just like, oh, this is, and, I, and it reminded me that spring has a muddiness to it. Oh yeah. Too, you know, so I had to go back cause I was like, uh oh, I lost it. I lost the magic. I lost the romance, <laughs> what, what happened? And I went back and, you know, okay, start again, start again. And it's almost, yeah, you, you need to return, right? Return back to that beginning. And it was, it was that self blessing. And I'm so glad you brought that up. Cause that was something I wanted to ask you about. And you've already kind of talked about it a little bit, but that idea of self-blessing, you know, I feel like we talk so much about self-care mm -hmm. and this just like took it up to a holy level mm -hmm. of blessing, you know, and, and, you know, this is St. Francis, this is a religious icon, you know, and, and there was something really powerful. And I'm wondering if you could talk, bring that out just a little bit more, what that self-blessing might, you know, and how that how this poem has maybe helped you maybe even cultivate a practice of self-blessing. So it's true. You know, I think it's interesting that the St. Francis makes the appearance in here, right? And we think, some of us, have an idea that, that there is this need to be blessed by someone else or that it would be lovely to be blessed by someone else is if someone else could do the work for us, right? Whether it's being blessed by the muse or like by the, the good fairy who shows up with her magic wand and bing, everything's all right and better. And um, an idea that perhaps it could come from outside. And what the poem beautifully says, I think, is that it's not St. Francis's job to bless the sow and that's it. No, St. Francis um, retells it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. It is the, he reminds her, yes, you too, sweet sow in the mud, undone and, and laid out, splayed out with 14 mouths sucking on you. You too are holy in this very moment, so holy. And I have felt like that. I have felt like that, you know, sow in the mud being sucked on. <laughs> you know? What nothing feels holy about this. Yeah. And yet in those moments, those are the most important moments, I suppose, to 
to trust, I guess that's it, to trust our own divinity, right? To know from only from within. Even so, it would be so nice if somebody else could just magic one thing do that work for us yeah and and that work as you said that i just realized you know it's sometimes i think you know we we put ourselves into these self-help therapies and you know we're going to train ourselves to become super meditators and that's how we're going to give ourselves and bestow upon ourselves this self-blessing and at the same time i feel like it's just within this moment that reteaching and that retelling, as you were just saying that, it hit me of all it is is a shift of perspective. And that happens in a blink of an eye. And it so when you talk about the work and only I can do the work, I feel like the work is just like, oh, let me just take two steps over here so I see it from another angle. Like we just <clears throat> make it so hard on ourselves. <laughs> So I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but. Absolutely, Anne-Marie, I think that's the reason I write poems every day. And I, I've, I don't know, you know, I've been writing a poem every day since 2006, yeah. I think. So that's how many thousands of poems, but, but what's happened over that period of time that, you know, 14 years or so, is that writing a poem allows for that witnessing right it allows for that very slight perspective shift it allows us to be i always think of it this way the the narrator of our own life instead of the hero the hero hates failure right the hero never wants to be caught lying in the mud yeah <laughs> but the narrator sees the hero lying in the mud and sees the potential of that moment right the narrator knows always Oh, look, our hero's in the mud. Let's watch how they get back up. You know? yeah. Let's see how the hero is going to deal with being in the mud. Could the hero love being in the mud? The narrator has zero attachment to, or I mean, the narrator has zero attachment to a, a happy, positive, heroic outcome. It just wants to see, can the hero show up now? Can the hero show up now? And I feel like that's what my poems do for me. They are constant invitations to show up now, show up now. And they honor everything that comes in, everything that comes in. Every, and by thing, I mean thing, I suppose, like every doorknob, big lighter, uh, trash can, lawn chair, the things, everything that comes in, but they also honor every feeling that shows up, every every fear, every betrayal, every delight, every thrill. They are all equally welcome in a poem, right? They all, the poem has space for them all, it has space for awareness and epiphany and witnessing and acceptance for every single thing that can come up. And so that, that is why. I write poems. Uh, gorgeous. Thank you. Oh my goodness. Yes. That uh, Rosemary, the poem every day. I'm so, you know, I wanted to bring that up at some point. And I think, you know, not everyone has to write a poem a day, you know, like it's just finding your way of, of, you know, being able to look at the world or your situation or your relationship to these things that come in and out of your life in a different way, you know, so whatever that practice looks like for you. And 
again, as you were talking, you know, these ideas, you're so inspirational in that way. And that like everything you're saying, I'm just like, oh, I have a new, oh, that's, thank you for bestowing a new thought on me. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, that, that idea of being the narrator, and I've often thought of this, you know, and as have others, of this idea of being an author is to be the authority of your life. And that kind of come, ties back into that self-blessing of mm -hmm. like, you know, the way you get to tell your story in the way that you want to tell it. Mm -hmm. And the way you tell your story is really powerful in how people respond to you or react to you. And, you know, so, so I think in some ways, you know, for me, poetry, what it does for me, whether I'm reading it or writing it, is it allows for me to pause and take a breath before I react. So now I'm responding in relationship. Um, and, and then I feel like when I'm responding versus reacting, I'm like, now I'm, now I'm the authority, you know, not that I'm controlling things, but I'm aware of the relationship somehow. I don't know if that's, that's funny. I have a funny relationship with that word authority. I'm probably not the only one. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. This is why I think about it a lot. I'm, I have a funny relationship with it and I'm always trying to see it from another, like, why does that get to me so much? Yeah. I wonder if it's, I think feeling into it right now, you know, just where, how is it landing in me? Um, there's something about authority that feels like control, like a certain, like, there's a hierarchy to it. There's a hierarchy in it. There's a power structure in it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Not that it isn't true. I mean, I don't doubt that it's there, but I feel some little resistance to it. Mm -hmm. um, yep. <laughs> just interesting to notice that it's, and it's funny how many labels I resist you know like I think that that's I think about this all the time right is what are the labels that we put on and how do they inform that moment it's just like you're, it's just what you were saying you know how do how does the label we put on it how does the story we tell about it inform our experience right. and you know for instance I have the hardest time still I don't I kind of resist being called a poet I mean, come on, how many hundreds, thousands of poems? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I don't know about that one. I, I don't, or any of them, right? Yeah. In fact, this was, this was one of the best revelations that came by accident I've ever had. It was, it was, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, 13 years ago. And I was writing the, oh, it was, I think my new, I had a book had just come out and my husband was looking at it and, and my bio was on the back and it said, you know, Rosemary Watola Tromer is a mother, baker, you know, runner, wife, whatever. I put on a list of things and my husband says, what do you think the more things you put on there, the more people will like you? And I was like, oh, I mean, it hurt. And I was pissed. <laughs> And I was like, it's a bio. And I got very defensive. I'm like, you know, you, you put these things on so people build a bridge to you. You know, they think, yes, I bake bread too. Yes, I'm a runner too, you know. And then, and then this kind of thought. I thought, well, 
So I get a divorce and I'm not a wife and my kids die and I'm not a mom and I become gluten intolerant and I am not a baker and I break my leg and I'm not a runner. And am I still me? And I thought, yeah, whatever is most essential in me has nothing to do with any of these labels, even the ones that feel closest to home, like woman or right? None of them are whatever's the most essential. And that was, wow, such a revelation in how false some of these, these labels are just the, that we take them so seriously in a way, or we aspire to them. Yes. And they become these layers of identity that, that actually have almost nothing to do with who we are. Mm. even though they may define how we spend our days. I love that insight. Um, that is so, um, it's, it just, it, it's one of those just lifts the burden off your shoulders of, but it, it also makes me think of that's the tricky part of living in a, in a time where we write everything down. So that we, so we're, so we're writing it. And I feel like that's, what's tricky about writing is instead of being, I guess, in, in contrast to us still kind of living in more of an oral culture, right. Where poems and stories and everything would have been, you know, um, we would have done that all orally. And so then it's alive and it has a life and you can say one day I've been baking and the next day you can say I'm running. And because it's not, there's something about writing it down that really does feel like I'm boxed in now. If I say on this bio that I'm a baker runner and the next bio, I say, I'm a sailor and a this, then people are going <laughs> to think I am crazy. You know? So I think there's something about even just the nature of writing that, and I often wonder that myself with, when it comes to these labels, um, that's just something I thought of is, would we be willing to be more of it, you know, explorers and, and let our lives kind of just flow and one day say I'm this and tomorrow I'm going to be something different. And that doesn't mean I'm not committed or whatever. It just means I'm maybe living a more intuitive, inspirational life. But I think that's true. The more, the more it's, it's, solidified writing you know I because I also think writing could do the opposite mm. right I also think that the like here's here's an example so two three days ago I wrote a poem in which I said this I think the poem began tonight the heart is a vase and in the vase was this giant bouquet of you know like uh thistles and lilies and burdock and poppies and you know it was just all these the awful and the beautiful just side by side and then the vase is getting bigger and bigger and I'm trying to hold it all hold it all hold it all and it hurts to hold it all and I'm like but I and how is it that the vase like actually gets bigger and you're still holding it all and you think I can't do this but you do and and for that night it was the truest frame it was the truest metaphor right I'm a vase I, and I believed it. I'm a vase and I'm holding it all. I'm holding it. I'm holding it. My God, it hurts, but I'm holding it all. And the next day, um, I was talking to my spiritual teacher, Joy Sharp, and she says, 
why do you think you have to hold it all? Hmm. What would happen if instead of holding it, you let it move through you? Mm, yes. And so the poem I wrote the next day that was <laughs> the truest thing I could write that day was about being a colander, about being an hourglass, you know, about being the, the what allows things to just pass right through, mm. just pass right through. And, and it was the truest thing that day. So in some ways, I think it's true that that we, if I had kept that metaphor and I, I put up that poem about I'm a vase and I hung it up on my wall and and I really filled myself with I'm a vaseness <laughs> right I am such a vase and I start to claim it and I even put Rosemary Watola Tromer as a vase in her bio you know like I just think that the, the more I identified with that the, the more stuck I would be but to write into it again the next day this is part of why I think it's so good to just let go of whatever we've written, <laughs> like to not yes, let it be yeah. precious. And um, because then there was that beautiful experience of being the colander. Yeah. Gosh, that was so easy to feel it and let it go. Feel yeah. it and let it go. And, you know, and then last night I was something else. I love that. I love, I think that's, you know, I think, yeah, I feel like that's why, you know, why journaling for so many people is such a healing practice, you know, because it, it does, it allows them to just get something out on the page, they can let it go. But I also think that's what makes, you know, people who publish their writings all the more courageous because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm sure you've had the experience of looking back on some of the things you've written and published and thought, I'm not there anymore. I'm not there. Anymore. Oh my gosh. Those first five, five, six books. I'm like, I, I don't relate to them at all. I hardly know who that woman was. Yeah. <laughs> and then and you have to let that go too, which is a whole nother layer of that uh, practice of letting go. But I could go down this rabbit hole of poetic philosophy with you forever. <laughs> um, and I'm trying to watch our time and make sure we get through maybe a couple more poems. Um, so maybe let's let's move on to the second poem that you've um, sure. This one I remember reading in Writer's Almanac, gosh, quite some time ago, maybe 10, at least 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, it's by Dana Albergati and it's called Things to Do in the Belly of the Whale. I mean, come on, even just the title, you're like, really, what? Things to do in the belly of the whale? Yes. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Measure the walls. Count the ribs. Notch the long days. Look up for blue sky through the spout. Make small fires with the broken hulls of fishing boats. Practice smoke signals. Call old friends and listen for echoes of distant voices. Organize your calendar, dream of the beach. Look each way for the dim glow of light. Work on your reports. Review each of your life's 10 million choices. Endure moments of self-loathing. Find the evidence of those before you. Destroy it. Try to be very quiet and listen for the sound of gears and moving water. Listen for the sound of your heart. Be thankful 
that you are here swallowed with all hope where you can rest and wait, be nostalgic, think of all the things you did and could have done. Remember treading in water in the center of the still night sea, your toes pointing again and again down, down into the black depths. I, I don't know what it was that moved you to share this poem, but I thought it was very appropriate for the past year plus. <laughs> so I don't know if that had anything to do with you picking <laughs> this poem, but maybe you could talk a little bit about that and, you know. Just well, I certainly loved this poem long before the pandemic. And isn't that the beauty of metaphor really is that it is a large enough container to hold almost any experience we put into it. Mm -hmm. And even so, uh, you know, I think because this is a poem about entrapment, right? It's a poem about being somehow stuck in a certain small space. In this case, an unusual space, an unlikely space, the belly of a whale. And how many of us, I remember when I first read this poem, you know, a month or so, well, not even that much, maybe a few weeks into the pandemic. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is now, here we are, <laughs> you know? exactly in this place. And, you know, examining 10,000 choices and during moments of self-loathing, trying to find evidence of other people who've been through something like this, you know, it's a, um, it's a, it's a poem that really does invite us to explore what do we do when we feel trapped and what of that might be useful and what of that is spinning our wheels. Um, I think one of my favorite lines in this poem comes about two thirds of the way through. Be thankful that you are here, swallowed with all hope where you can rest and wait. That's a crazy kind of gratitude, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Swallowed with all hope. And in that moment of hopelessness, what's possible is to meet the moment. Yeah. Not the moment we're looking toward or forward to, but the moment that's actually here. Yeah. And then from that place, now we can really do something. Yes which is rest and wait. I mean, that's, I think there's, when you right. it's to like, do something, which is in this case, it doesn't look like we're doing much. Right. And it's that I, <laughs> this poem, you know, what it did for me was one of those moments that just was a reminder of like, oh, I can stop striving and trying. Like, I just like, just, and I feel like that's that kind of darkness in that feminine womb place is that, I often think of, you know, when, when you're in a womb place and that can feel entrapment or, you know, or it's that creative space, mm -hmm. but it's just, I always think of the difference between, you know, at that point, rather than demanding of yourself to, you know, achieve something or accomplish something, you just kind of sit back and rest and command it to come to you, <laughs> you know, just like, <laughs> all right, I'm going to stop reaching. Just, I'm going to be right here. Everybody knows where I'm at. I'm in the belly of the well. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> rest and wait and see what comes. Just see what comes out of this darkness. Yeah, isn't that an amazing way to be, Emery? Yeah. In that place of I'm showing up without grasping, without striving. Yeah. Yeah. Because something will happen. Yeah. That we know, right? You don't stay in that place for long. Yeah. One of my favorite, um, you know, I love etymology of words as I think most poets like to get lost in, in that space now and then. I ran into um, one root of the word desire is to await what the stars will bring. Ooh. And so I was just, you know, so when I think of being in these dark places, you know, because sometimes I think we, we associate desire with grasping maybe, you know, like I want something and you get so focused on it, but I was just like, ah, oh, desire is this longing for whatever the stars will bring, you know, and this light, whatever little bit it is, you know, like. There's an openness in that, isn't there? That's interesting. Yeah. That yeah. whatever, I suppose it's that word. Yeah. The openness too. Yeah, so that just came to mind. But, um, so I'm wondering too, um, maybe if we, uh, veer off the poems for just a minute. I know I'll come back to them because there's, but I want to also ask you about, I kind of think of it as, you know, your own love story with poetry, you know, how and when did you find poetry? And if it, you know, if it makes sense to maybe even answer the re reverse of that is how did poetry find you? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So. When I was in fourth grade, I remember we were given an assignment to write a poem about a color, I chose pink. It was a really, you know, just a terrible poem <laughs> that I wrote in fourth grade uh, that had zero, nobody reading it would think, oh my God, she's got talent. Um, but it was fun. That was, it. it was fun. I realized how much I loved it. And then fell in love with Shel Silverstein and would read his poems out loud and, read them over and over and over and over and over. And, and so that was, that was the beginning was this realization that there was so much pleasure to be had in meeting the world with language. And they were often very silly. They, you know, they were, they were, they were, they were goofy. They were fun. I wasn't trying to write about big emotions. I was just having a good time. And there's no doubt in my mind that that is why I still write every day to this day, right? Is because even when we're meeting betrayal or loss, there is still a great pleasure in finding the words to meet this moment. Mm -hmm. the, that pleasure, that play, just to know that every time I sit down, there isn't one way to do it right, that there are infinite ways to do it right, which kind of opens up the entire playground of language for us, the entire playground of emotions for us. Um, so it began with that, just knowing that, oh, there's joy in this. Mm. And then, and then I, I, you know, was introduced to E.E. E. Cummings by the my priest when I was being confirmed, um, when I was, you know, maybe, what is that, 12, 13 years old, he realized how much I love language and gave me a book of E. Cummings poems, which was just more complex play, right? It was much more adult, 
but I was like, well, you can still do it even if you're not writing silly rhyming things. Whoa, you know, and then in college, Gerard Manley Hopkins was this kind of, wow, look at that. You know, he, his writing was so rich and infused with, you know, music really. And I, yeah, I, I think that, that that was kind of the start, right? Those were like the three, the core, they were like my core, but the, the true devotion mm. came, I think when I, I moved here to Telluride back in 94, and I, I started doing programs for the library, mm. teaching poetry and started doing lots of study on my own so that I could teach. And just really, that's, certainly that's when I met that Galway Canal poem. And I just know that that, that 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 just like deep dive into poetry, just reading and reading and reading and reading and discovering all these new poets and what they were doing. And that that got me really thinking, oh my gosh, these poems have so much to say about yeah. what it is to be alive and yeah not just the writing of them but reading more broadly especially you know I love contemporary American poets that's I love many 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 poets but the contemporary American poets are are my favorite still to read that's beautiful thank you for sharing that and I love that you know it caught you still in that you know childhood place of wonder and awe and so you know I feel like that's what's at you know the heart of poetry is that wonder and awe of you know being alive and seeing things and in each moment and seeing its value um but i you know in the same way that i think you know either painters or sculptors those who kind of like find it when they're young and are able to kind of carry it through um so I, that's um i'm just so grateful the child in you grasped <laughs> <laughs> onto that and and saw the playfulness in it and has obviously you obviously kept that I mean it's you use the word devotion and so to me that just is a reminder that devotion is playful mm, um, oh yeah oh yeah I often think because I, I I don't believe and I've had many fights about this with my friend Christy but I don't believe that I am I don't have talent <laughs> I, I've taught in enough second grade classrooms and read the poems of second graders that just make me fall over that I think <laughs> I know what talent looks like. That's what it is. That wasn't me. But what I, but what I did have and still have um, devotion. I mean, I love, I love poetry so much. Um, stubbornness. <laughs> I am so willing to show up over and over and over and over and over. I'm so willing to do that. Um, and I think the sense of play, you know, this willingness to see, oh, now what, you know, let's try this. Um, I, I think that I like saying that out loud to people because for, for anyone who's like me, who thinks, oh my gosh, I'm not really good at that. Like I, I was totally a math science girl. Mm. Holy and I loved chemistry. I loved algebra. I loved calculus. And then, but I, you know, ultimately it wasn't what was fueling me. Yeah. And I don't think you need talent. I don't. I think you just need devotion and stubbornness, really. <laughs> 
maybe there are other paths too. I don't think that there are many, 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 many paths, but that's the path that worked for me. And it didn't involve being a child genius. That's for sure. Right. <laughs> Thank God that pressure is lifted. I hope, you know, we, that's one of the things we constantly remind ourselves of that genius. I, I don't know. I like to think of it in that, in a more uh, mythological sense anyway, nowadays, but, um, I do want to know, you know, you brought up teaching poetry and I know, you know, you mentioned you were teaching children, but, you know, when, when you do encounter people who are, you know, adults and wanting to create a relationship, start a relationship with poetry and reading it, where, where do you, where do you suggest they start or how they start or just kind of warm up to it? Mm -hmm. uh, so, of course, one of the most important things to do is read a lot, read a lot, notice what you fall in love with. And no, I, you know, I always like to remind people because I think, especially if you're coming to poetry new again, there's some feeling still of, oh no, I don't get it. I just am not cut out for this. And I just love telling people that I don't get most poems either, <laughs> right? I read a lot of poems and think, huh, I have no idea. Um, that happens to me all the time. And I don't love many poems either. I love one or two in a hundred, you know, but I'm so willing to read a hundred to get to those one or two because they've, you know, changed my life. They make the world shine brighter. So, um, so read, read widely, knowing that you don't have to love everything you read, just whatever you fall in love with, be drawn to that. And then imitate that, try it out. There's nothing, nothing, nothing better than learning a poem that you love by heart. And the more poems we have by heart, the more able we are to bring all those tools all that wisdom, all that phrasing, all those images to us when we sit down to do our own writing. So that I just think that that to bring it inside, to bring those poems inside and, and really, you know, I think of like literally writing them on the heart, letting them be written in the heart. That is the biggest gift we can give ourselves. And if you can't, if you say, oh, I can't learn a poem by heart, then learn it wrong by heart. Then do that. <laughs> you know, but but I think that 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 intimate relationship with poems, with other people's poems, mm. helps fuel our relationship with our own poems. It's like the you know, it just, it's like uh, knowing, knowing that when we write poems, we are in conversation with every other person who's written a poem. We are in conversation with every other poet across continents and cultures and centuries who's also struggling like, like we are with what does it mean to be alive, right? So when we know we're in a big a part of this big conversation, then it just makes so much sense to read these poems and add our voices yeah. to this other, to this larger conversation. And, and most importantly, William Stafford said it famously, although I thought I said it first and found out he said it. So <laughs> he gets the credit, um, lower your standards. It's the most important thing that we can do when we're writing, no matter how advanced you are in your writing practice, 
to know that when we sit down as I, I, every day when I sit down, I tell myself it does not have to be good, but it has to be true. And I just let myself write the next truest thing, the next truest thing. And if we aim to do that, well, we can do that, right? Mm -hmm. If we sit down to write something good, then I can promise you, you won't write much. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Pressure is on. No, I love that. Um, True. It doesn't have to be good, but it has to be true. And uh, that's, that's beautiful permission. Um, And I, you know, as you were talking to again, and just, you know, even saying, you know, memorize it wrong. Um, It reminded me, I, I see the way I experience poetry, first and foremost, is rhythm and music. Mm -hmm. So I'll often tell people like, don't worry about the words and what it means, just how does it feel like feel it in your body and, and as you were talking, this kind of <laughs> visual came to me of, you know, going to a music concert and there are the people who get up out of their chairs and dance, you know, and are moved by it. And then there are the people who don't know what to do with, you know, they're just kind of <laughs> And I think, you know, it's, and depending on what the music is, some music doesn't move me to dance, you know, it's not it doesn't resonate as in the same way that maybe some other music might get me out of my chair and dance. And so I just have this visual of people approaching poetry in that way of like, what makes you feel like dancing, you know? And then, and again, to just to move with the rhythm and if you're memorizing it wrong, just get the rhythm. There's something about it that, you know, will come through that's yours, that, that is exactly. needed to be expressed. <laughs> There is a gorgeous book um, about this by Kim Rosen called Saved by a Poem, in which she really talks you talks you through a, a process of how to how to learn a poem by heart and and what to do with it, what, you know, the lines that stymie us and to get really curious about those. And it's a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous book. Um, and I love this suggestion of yours to to meet a poem and think, you know. Are you the poem that'll make me dance? Yeah. <laughs> what poems make me dance? Yeah, <laughs> oh, or, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. No, that's I. Yeah, I'm a. You know, I grew up more musically trained than. And then when poetry came along, that's when I was like, oh, these are like the same thing. It's exactly the same thing, and it's all about rhythm and melody and harmonies and discord and like you know the tension and this and that. So it's always been. So I'll tell people like, yeah, the, and it's like with music, you know, if all you ever heard was classical music and it wasn't your thing and you were like, well, I just don't like music. You know, right. I think a lot of people are exposed <laughs> to this little sliver of poetry and decide that they don't like poetry. That's not for me. Well, if you don't like Roger Kipling, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Like Lee Young Lee, you know? <laughs> right. And I love this, of course, the suggestion to just read more. And I, I, yeah, I, assure people that in the same way that they love the music they love they'll come to love the poetry they love and it will just you know you find artists you like and then you find similar artists you like and it's the same with poetry it will just start to snowball so the thing about that too with poetry there there are if you do find you know a poet you like there are several anthologies that are out right now that I just love, 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 love. Mm -hmm. Um, 
that and and if you can find an anthologer that you love my goodness now you've got a treasure trove because you know so the I'll just mention that one of them is Poetry of Presence. It's edited by Phyllis Coldai and Ruby Wilson. I, I, yum. Mm. Um, <laughs> and uh, my friend James Cruz has two books now that, uh, two anthologies. One's called Healing the Divide, and the other is How to Love the World. And they're just the most delicious, incredible anthologies of poems that so consistently move me you know I said you know maybe two out of a hundred you know when I'm just out looking for poems on my own but reading these books it's more like you know one out of you know two out of three I'm like yeah oh yeah oh yeah so you know it just to find an anthologer that you resonate with is to open up a whole new world for yourself such a great suggestion yeah Yes, thank you for that. Um, and I'm going to look at those. Um, those sound amazing. <laughs> so, and I'm bummed because I have a million more questions I want to ask you, but I'm going to stop um, asking you questions because I really want you to read um, this final poem, which is one of yours. Um, I've just been, you, you do um, a poem a day, but you also will read them sometimes on Facebook. So I did that for, you know, at the start of the pandemic, yeah, I was desperate to do something to help, yeah. you know, just wanted so badly to be of service somehow. And knowing how poems fuel me and nurture me and comfort me and invite me to meet the moment as it is without necessarily making it better, but just let me be in that moment. Yeah. Um, that's why I started sharing them and I shared them daily through April because it was National Poetry Month and then I started calling it Poetry Life and I just kept doing it for <laughs> quite a few more months until my something happened and Facebook and I didn't get along anymore like my mouth was always not synced with oh so I stopped because I couldn't I tried and tried to figure out how to make my mouth sync in, in Facebook live and it wouldn't so Oh, so that was the untimely. No, I was like, oh, we're on hiatus. I was trying to catch up and <laughs> on hiatus, but now I know why. Well, now <laughs> I feel I'm so much more happy that you're going to read us one of your poems now because it sounds like it will be more rare. <laughs> <laughs> um, this one is actually a couple of years old. And, and I wrote it, in fact, um, I was working for a group of it was a science and spirituality festival and so i was leading poetry writing for scientists basically watching my friend pretend her heart isn't breaking on earth just a teaspoon of neutron star would weigh six billion tons Six billion tons equals the collective weight of every animal on earth, including the insects, times three. Six billion tons sounds impossible until I consider how it is to swallow grief. Just one teaspoon and one may as well have consumed a neutron star. 
how dense it is, how it carries inside it the memory of collapse, how difficult it is to move then, how impossible to believe anything could lift that weight. There are many reasons to treat each other with great tenderness. One is the sheer miracle that we are here together on a planet surrounded by dying stars. One is that we cannot see what anyone else has swallowed. Mm. That one is hard not to weep, <laughs> both reading it and, and hearing you um, read it. It's the, both times when you, when I read it and when you just read it now, there's this sense of grace and generosity that I feel like you're gifting us in these moments of grief. In fact, when I first read it, I was like, I'm so glad she said, to swallow grief, you know, swallowing grief rather than choking on it, because often I feel like <laughs> I'm choking on, you know, my grief. And the swallowing is, there's something nourishing about it, strangely. And mm -hmm. I feel like that's what this poem is. It's such a heavy, it has, there's, you start out with just this weight and the heaviness, and yet somehow. I, and I, I keep trying to, you know, and I'm like, stop trying to find why this is, but somehow you magically make this feel light. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's all I want. I don't want to try to dig too deep and, and articulate too much, but that that's just my feeling of it and why I'm, you know, and hearing you read it again there again, it's like, why, how did you do that? This is magic, Rosemary. <laughs> it's such a heavy topic, but it feels... Like I can, you know, maybe it's a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine goes down. I don't know what you did here, but it's magic. So thank you. Well, I don't know either, except that my hunch is that it was fueled by compassion, this poem. Mm -hmm. And um, and also I suppose it's a poem that isn't trying to fix anything. It's just honoring how hard it is sometimes to be alive. Yeah. And that, I think when I read poems <clears throat> like that, it, there's a, it, I think it is truly refreshing, right? It, yeah. It's, oh, oh, I, you didn't try to fix me. You just let my grief be, you know, yeah. and you you know, you know, it's just, it's so hard, even if we don't, and we don't know, that's the other thing is we just don't know, we just don't know yeah. what anyone else is going through, we have no idea. Right. No idea. Thank you for that, and, and for, I feel like that's a really, I don't know, I don't know if it's the day, but I'm definitely in a tender place, and I, and I would love for us to just end it there but I do want to have you just tell people you have a you know if you could tell us a little bit more about where people can find you you have a podcast with your friend Christy that's really lovely I've been catching up on and so yeah maybe just tell us where people can find you mm -hmm. thank you um the podcast 
is called Emerging Form, and you can find that at emergingform.com. <clears throat> and it is really fun. We, She's a scientist and I'm a poet and we definitely come at the world from very different ways. And uh, we've been friends for so long and tease each other a lot <laughs> as we interview other, other creative people struggling with their creative lives, just as we are celebrating each other's creative lives. Um, and the daily poems I actually put out into the world every day. You can find them on my blog, which is all spelled out, a hundred fallingveils.com. And my website, actually, when you go to a hundred fallingveils.com, then you can see all the poems from, I'm not sure, maybe the last 10 years are on there. Um, and then you, there's also a place where you can sign up to have them sent to your inbox with MailChimp. It's a lot of, I mean, it's every single day. It's an email. And I, you know, <laughs> as soon as I found out you did this, I signed up and it's been, it's, it's like, that's the one thing I look for. <laughs> Everything else goes right to the trash. So I'm like, so nice to have something I look forward to. Oh, <laughs> I'm like, this Thank is you. awesome. Oh yeah, it's it's a really it is a daily gift to the world. That's incredible. Um, it's it's a lot. So thank you for the work and the devotion and the playfulness <laughs> that you you do. So um, I, one more spot. There's my website, which is wordwoman.com, and there's lots of. For people who do want to write on there in the news section, I have lots of what I call thought shops that are recorded and people can just get into a thought shop and they're usually on a theme. The most recent one was Dear 2020, writing about the pandemic year, um, but they're on resilience or transition or all kinds of things. And it's just 40 minutes of me reading poems and offering prompts, reading poems, offering prompts. And you can just watch it and put me on pause and have a little workshop there in your own home. It's so lovely. Thank you. So many great offerings. Um, yeah, I could just live in your little world all day if I didn't have a day job. <laughs> <laughs> but <clears throat> yeah, so thank you so much, Rosemary, for joining us here. And um, yeah. Thanks, Emery. It's a real joy to talk with you too. I loved your questions and your responses and your insights and your love of language and your thrill in poetry it's it's obvious and it's a joy it's a joy to talk with you thank you thank you this has been so fun and i i do hope i run into you in person someday um